Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast, where we deliver a variety of fresh content to help you live awesome. Enjoy the show. Engage with us online at marksdailyapple.com and on social media, and send your questions to info at primalblueprint.com. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. Today, we have Robert Glazer. He is the founder and CEO of global performance marketing agency, Acceleration Partners. He's a serial entrepreneur, has a passion for helping individuals and organizations build their capacity to elevate. And we're going to be talking about his book called Elevate, Push Beyond Your Limits and Unlock Success in Yourself and Others. He's also a very sought after speaker by companies and organizations on subjects related to business growth, culture building, capacity and performance. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Al. Great to be here. How did you become a serial entrepreneur? Uh, I think you're born that way. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Initially, it's a disease. Um, Yeah, I guess I became unemployable uh, at some point and and decided that when I found a problem with something, I I, I would try to start a company to to solve the solution. So um, I've been doing that for a while now, and have started uh, a few different a few different companies uh, doing different things. And um, yeah, it's fun to uh, try to try to figure out a, a a solution to to a problem that that other people have been complaining about or not doing anything about. What are some? You are a regular columnist for Forbes and Entrepreneur, so you know your writing reaches so many people. And so I know you're talking a lot about this topic. But just back to beginning, when you first started to be an entrepreneur, what were some of your early endeavors? Yeah, so I was always involved with early stage businesses. Um, I worked sort of in the strategy consulting, the venture uh, space. Um, and then joined a, a company on the operations side, um, very much in consumer and life cycle businesses. Um, and what I really started to notice was um, it was ultimately like the ability of that business to figure out how to get customers co- cost effectively that 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 determined their their success. And that some businesses had really figured that out. And some businesses had great products and service that no one knew about, and they and they were much smaller. Uh, and that that we ended up really building our business around that notion of, of, of customer acquisition and helping, helping companies do that. But I think, um, yeah, if you have a great product and no one knows about it and, or you can only like, you know, get people to buy it by losing money, you know, on every sale on Facebook, like it's just not going to be a sustainable business. In your, in your book, Elevate, you know, you reveal some life-changing principles or what you call capacities, right, that allow you to overcome self-limiting beliefs. Now, this is a very, you know, big sort of buzz phrase, right, limiting beliefs, these stories we have about ourselves or that were projected to uh, onto us by others and how that affects us, right, with success in business, speaking up, getting what we want. Um, let's talk about this. Um, other than reading the book, let's go through some of these capacities. The first one, like, what is capacity building? Yeah, so I, I I can give you the the, the long answer or the short yeah. answer. So Let's take <laughs> capacity, a long one. capacity building's the method by which individuals seek, acquire, and develop the skills and ability to consistently perform at a high level in pursuit of their innate potential. That's sort of how I define it. The the the, the easy version of that, I think it's actually the process of how you get better, like how you build your capacity to do something. And um, you, may, you mentioned the four elements, which are spiritual, intellectual, physical, and emotional. I, I think people most resonate with the concept of like physical capacity. So, you know, I 
have a 20 pound weight and I can barely lift it, you know, five times. But if I lift that weight every day for 90 days and keep adding um, resistance to it at the end of 90 days, I can lift that um, probably faster and easier than I could have at the beginning. I, I, I've built my capacity to, to do that on the physical side. And, and I think the same things are true in these in these other in spiritual, intellectual and emotional. However, we tend to sort of like lump these things as things that people have or don't have, not things like that, that, that you can improve your capacity on and actually improve your your ability in those areas. You know, from someone who's sort of like seemingly a type A go-getter entrepreneurial <laughs> person, um, what was building your spiritual capacity? What did it look like before you went down this road to try to elevate yourself in that area? And what does it look like now? Yeah, so my my it would be helpful to define them all first, and then and then and then kind of jump back sure. into them. Or yeah, so let me just I'll just set the stage. So so spiritual capacity is understanding who you are, what you want most, the standards you want to live by. You hear terms like core values, core purpose, and why. I think all of those things are are relevant. It's not not religious to me. It's just it's just your compass. Um, and I think these go in a particular order and intellectual is about how you improve your ability to think, learn and plan and execute with discipline. This is where you get concepts such as the growth mindset, being proactive, setting short and long term goals, uh, establishing your routines, habits, accountability, physical, more intuitive, you know, is your health and well-being, physical performance, uh, you know, eating, sleeping, managing stress. I think competition is a part of uh, physical and also building resilience. And then emotional is how you react to the outside world, uh, you know, situations that you don't expect, uh, things that you can't control, your relationships with other people. And that's where a lot of the self-limiting beliefs come in. And as you rightly said, I think a lot of times those are are given to us um, by other people. So my, my journey with the spiritual capacity actually started um, about six or seven years ago when um, – I went to a pretty intensive leadership program as part of uh, entrepreneurs organization. It was a program that they um, held uh, for about 20 people from around the world four or five days. And I thought, this is great. I'm going to come out of this and I'm going to like understand how to manage and lead people better, like very much the sort of external elements of leadership and the first couple of days were really designed to like break you down. <laughs> and I was like, it felt like a big mirror. And I was like, no, like this is, this is about you. Like, what do you value? Who are you? Like, have you figured these things out? Because it's almost impossible to be an authentic leader if, if, if you just haven't sorted these things out. And I, 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 you know, it wasn't like figured everything out in those four days, but that really set me on a journey over the next uh, six months or year, even two years to, to be able to articulate my core values, to realign my business around them, to realign my personal and professional life, everything around them. And, and, um, we do that today with a lot of our managers. I think, I think it makes all the difference and, and it just becomes really clear. And if you're able to articulate even a core purpose, it just becomes really clear why you're doing stuff and what you're going to be happy with and fulfilled and where you're, where you're not going to be too. I love what you said about this in your book on that core purpose. Um, and there's, there's lots of little action steps and things in here to sort of contemplate how to move forward. And I love this one, which was, Hey, write down a few paragraphs of your own obituary. Like, how do you want to be remembered? Because your answer might contain several words or concepts that are part of your core purpose, you know? And I, I think that's such a great exercise. Often people, especially when you've 
I've noticed when you get to the point where people are like 40, et cetera, they might've had their kids. They've got the 401k, they've got the house yeah. and they're like, now what? Like, now what's what? my purpose? Yeah. And now, oh my gosh, now I'm getting up there. Uh Oh, and when am I leaving with the world? You know, my job is great and that's fine. And there's nothing wrong with it, but what is my purpose? I'm hearing this and I see this a lot. I think it's a wonderful exercise to do this about your own obituary. Yeah. And, and what's interesting about that is that before I went to that leadership academy with that same person, I had gone to a, a workshop that they had done, uh, a man named Warren Rustan, I talked about in the book. And, and he had said, you know, can you, you know, write your eulogy? What do you want to be remembered for? And this was really before I'd ever done any of this stuff. And I went back after years later with all purpose and figured out all this stuff. And I found the, the, the sort of notes from that session. And many of the words that I had answered in that very sort of primitive, primal, you know, answer to that question were, were right there in my core value and, and core purpose. And, uh, I, I just thought it was interesting how like on point that exercise was. And I, you've probably seen this. I mean, one thing I, I just see time and time again, in almost every discussion I have with, with people, when you start getting into this is that purpose for many people lies close to pain <laughs> and some sort of formative experience, you know, at some point in their personal life or professional life in childhood. And some people it's really obvious, right? You, you came to this country and you couldn't read and you become a champion of, of, of literacy. But I think a lot of other people are really driven by some formative experience and, and they don't, they're, they don't know what it is. And, and, when, and when you see those dots connect, like, I, I mean, you see, a, you, like I, I've seen it connect for people and the vulnerability and it's really, I, I was having a discussion with someone at dinner last week and she was explaining what she did and why she did it. And then she was telling me something about her family and the situation. And I was, I kind of was like pushing her towards those two dots and I just saw her like kind of get it. <laughs> and she just really hadn't made that um, connection before. She, what she was actually telling me was that her husband always said that she was like the marriage, um, she, I don't remember what the word was, but she could always tell where people were going to get divorced. She was like the marriage curse or something like that. And actually like there was a really bad sort of separation and stuff in her family. And I think she just was super in tune to that from her own situation. And, and while she knew that she had never really like put the two together. So I, 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 I just see examples of this time and time again. Another thing I really like that you mentioned, and this goes to partially discovering some limiting beliefs is, you know, you ask the reader, Hey, like think about times in your life when you've done well, and times when you struggled, yeah. what did those have in common? Write them down and circle the things and the concepts that overlap. And when I read that, one of the first things that came to mind was, yes, if you see a theme of something, negative or positive, but particularly negative, right? That is such a good place to come from because everyone's got a theme somewhere, right? About some story from something, you know, talking about it in my, uh, my new book with a, a person that had a story about kind of like being the one that was always wrong in the household, like made to yeah. be wrong, not legitimately, but was sort of the brat and the wrong person. So it bled into their employment life, right? Yeah. They were always wrong. Someone was always getting blamed. They didn't even do the shit that they were blamed for. And it was just like, well, huh, why is that happening to you and not me, Joe, Jim, or Bob, right? And and you start to see that. So I love that you you cover both of that. That's such a great exercise and can really lead you to many things, right? But to discovering a limiting belief that usually is some false bullshit story, and um, you can turn that around. But can you get into that a little bit and maybe some things you discovered about your list? 
Yeah. So, so, so two things, like three things. <laughs> One is some people struggle with wanting to go into that because of this perspective of, of victimization. I was really helped by a coach on this around understanding, like honoring your truth doesn't mean that, that, you know, you, you're playing a victim in the story. And I think this is something I struggle with. Like, the example I always use is like, let's say your your parent, you know, uh, came to America and was a single parent and worked three jobs to to get you into college and, and you got into Harvard and they wanted a better life for you. That's all they wanted. Now, let's say in doing that, that you were lonely a lot and so that you started, you know, you started a world class after school program to, you know, help kids of single parents, you know, feel feel more connected or, or, or something like that. Right. Like. You're not blaming the the right. That's just your story. It's the truth. It's part of what drive you, and it gave you passion around something. You know, you you understand that that parent did the best that they could do, and they wanted a better life for you. But that still doesn't change that you might have felt lonely. And I think a lot of people struggle with that, particularly people who don't like to you know be victims in a story, um, in terms of um, you know not 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 like dancing around that, that truth for them. But the, the exercise that you spoke about is, is really powerful. Some people around core values struggle, I think, to just get the label. Like I, I got the labels like two years later. I think it's more important to get the theme. And when you make those lists and you start to look at the pros and cons and what they have in common and the sort of the value and the anti-value, it, 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 the theme starts to illuminate itself. And, and the theme, if you can kind of group those themes, it's more important than having the, the perfect label on it. And I, and I talk about this in the book too, but but the anti-test is actually really interesting. One of the definitive tests for me is if you have a core of a core value, if something's really a core value, is if you can vision someone who is the opposite, like standing and talking to you of that core value. Like, it, is it kryptonite? Are they draining all your energy? Like, do you have to get away from them? Because a core value, that's what a core value is, right? It's something that's, it's almost physiological and when someone violates it. And when you have this person that embodies it, like, it's a really good test <laughs> to see. Give us an example. Like, Give us a breakdown of what that might look like. Yeah, so if you're someone like gratitude is a core value and you're just a giving person and you're standing at a party and you're talking to a trust fund baby that's, you know, complaining that they're, you know, million dollar allowance has been cut down to seven fifty, and woe is them. And you know, people aren't like that. That you literally want to scream. You know that 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 that's probably a good awareness. And you you mentioned this before, but these, it, to me, this is like critically important. And we work with leaders on this in our companies because you are the same person at at, at home and at work and otherwise. And you bring this stuff to work in your leadership. We recently did this with um, exercise with our team, and there's always some sort of breakthroughs. But one person came up to me after and said, "You know, um, you know, I had a, I have a parent that 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 sort of demonstrated a, a, a severe lack of self awareness, you know, when I was a kid in in all situations, and and I realized that like so self awareness has become a core value. People are usually running for or like against something or with something like from from this you know page." like so this person like self-awareness is a core principle in their life and when people on their team had showed cases where they didn't you know display self-awareness they kind of really like overreacted and it was a big aha moment for them to to both realize that and then be able to verbalize that to their team and say look self-awareness is really important to me like if you want to earn my trust and all that stuff like and, and they were actually able to like kind of articulate that to their team and and I think that's what – when you figure this stuff out, the most important thing you could do is tell the people you work with, the people you're married to. Like elsewhere, like this is who I am and this is where I'm going to do well and I'm, and, and, and I'm not going to do well. I mean one, one of my core values is, is self-reliance, right? So 
again, when I am talking with someone and they are just, you know, they, when they're talking about the the kids and, you know, everything they do for their kids and helicopter band, they couldn't let them do anything by themselves. And they, I, like, I, I do start like my blood pressure, like raises a little bit, like, cause it, it literally, it goes against something that I believe at, at, at my core. Like I, I'm really happy when my kids are displaying independence and going out on their own. Like I know some people get anxiety over that, but like to me, that's actually filling my bucket watching them become self-reliant because self-reliance is a core value of mine. Well, and that's interesting. Like you said, something you see the contrast of the opposite, something you don't like if you're triggered by can let you know what you feel more important about. And also potentially to preface things with other people. Like, um, I mean, side note, but you know, so I'm a very no BS person. Uh, sometimes I've had to learn to preface some things with certain personalities and different people and others didn't need it. Like when I'm talking to Mark Sisson, he's exactly the same as me. You could be talking on the phone and be like, all right, I got to go by click. And there's no one's offended. (laughs) Like, you know, it's just a different kind of level of communication. And then there's other people where that's not how they work. And so while it's opposite of me, I've got to find ways to sort of come in there, um, on a different approach and, and use that. But I also can be triggered by, again, people who aren't maybe at that level, not level, but just aren't at that, don't want to communicate that way. And so it's helped me with friends. You, and other, you know, right. People who dance around things, it right, probably drives you nuts. Drives right? me you, nuts. You don't trust, you don't trust them. Like, you don't trust yeah. them. And, and absolutely. And that's part of it. It's like- When they write you a two-page email and they don't know what you're asking for, like does yes. your blood boil when you read that? You're like, what are you totally, hiding? Totally. <laughs> totally. My, my type A part and my like is just, or, or even just basic one, lateness kills me kills me but you know over time it's like you have to learn like all right but it's helped me with friends in the sense that when they know me or they know a thing they now know how to preface it like they may call and be like hey uh i just i you know i i don't need you necessarily be on my side it all ends well because they know that i'll get protective if it's a story about someone you know dissing them in some way and they'll they know me well enough and we both know each other to kind of ask and preface and that works in um, you know, any kind of employment environment as well, you got to know who you're dealing with. And it can help in communication and prefacing and realizing this about yourself. So you can tell others, like, this is yeah, the best and, and, way to approach me, you know, right. And, that, and two things, right? A, the awareness of it, when I get into a situation, when I realize someone is my kryptonite, you know, I, I I'm aware of it now, and I know how to manage it better, right? I'm like, Oh, this is, this is, you know, there's someone right. who's highly dependent. Like I, you know, it, it, okay. So, so let me, I'll just, uh, again, knowing it, the reverse to what you said, like the ability to go to someone, you say, my guess is based on what you said and, and, and the punctuality, like something about your core values, just do what you say and show up and like own it. Right. There's some core value on that to you. So like if it, it, that would be really important for you to say on your team, like, Hey, look guys, like tardiness to me is like a sign of like disrespect or whatever. And like, you know, it's really important to me so so that they know that, right. So that they don't miss signal you, you know, in some way. So, so actually when we do this and our leaders go back to their teams and they say, here are my commitments to you. And here's sort of who I am now that I understand it. It's amazing. The improvements on their, their 360 feedback scores within three to six months. Like the team's like, okay, we get you. We understand (laughs) You're, you're giving us your playbook. Um, versus you know, like, making you, people wrong because see if you don't give the playbook to you know inevitably 
You're going to be yeah. disappointed, and you might as well be right up front from the start, laid out, right? It's just the best form of communication, and it's the most authentic. And it's actually kind of the most vulnerable because you might be admitting something about yourself that maybe isn't really like everyone else. And you're like, hey, just so you know, though, this is who I am, and this is what I get triggered by, or this is what I appreciate. Yeah, and it just seems so authentic. There's a lot of people, part of doing the why thing we do, who have trust as their why. And what we've learned is these people will overwork and exhaust themselves to earn someone's trust. And one of the facilitators once said, wouldn't it be easier just to go to people and say, trust is really important to me. So if you don't trust me, I need to know it. <laughs> like, and, and, and all this stuff. And, and, and just like, they just, you know, they were like so emotional, like being like, oh my God, that would make my life <laughs> so much better. Cause I, I come into these relationships and I so overinvest myself to, to earn trust rather than actually just explaining to people that that's a core principle for me. And by the way, almost all of those people have some core violation of trust from their childhood or whatever that that really, you know, led that to be so important to them. As a side note, before I want to get in, I want to ask you about this before I get into sort of like the fixed mindset, growth mindset, and kind of talking about ways to think about self-commentary. You know, you've worked with so many successful people, you are successful. What are some of the limiting beliefs or perspectives you've heard over time with regards to money or, you know, not being able to earn enough or whatever limiting beliefs behind money there are? I know there's some classic ones right out there like, you know, well, money doesn't grow on trees, (laughs) that kind of stuff. Um, But I'd love to hear those because there might be people out there that are like, ooh, that's me. Yeah, I look, a lot of it. So one of the things interesting on money is is sort of a confidence thing and tied to self-worth. You know, one of the examples I always give someone is, you know, if 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 I'm if I'm a babysitter and you say to me like, you know, your kids say, "Well, how much do you charge?" And I say, "Well, I'm like 10 to 15 dollars an hour." You know, what are you going to say? You're going to say, "Okay, how's how about 10 <laughs> or how about 11?" Yeah. right? And, and, and but if, if if I said, "I'm 25 dollars an hour," right? You you might be like, "Okay, well, then they are then they are where they are." So you I I really think that some of this is 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 a confidence thing around around worth and, and and putting it out there. And look, a lot of us have to pay our dues. You know, you you need to speak. You want to be a speaker. You do a lot of speaking for free. Then you get paid five hundred. And then soon you're at ten thousand or twenty thousand, and that's just sort of the, the the new norm. But but to me, the 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 real focus around around if you're chasing money as the end, it's really hard. I think if you're if you're focused on excellence in almost any discipline on being the best in that discipline, the, the, the money will come from what I've seen. I, I, I just, you know, it's amazing the specialization and the things that are, are in this world. So I, I, I think it's a real, like, you got to figure out what it is that you like, you know, maybe not find your passion. I, I agree with the sort of develop your passion, like get good at it, have the confidence and, and, you know, don't be afraid to, to ask for it because I, I, I mean, we're interviewing different uh, college counselors now, and it's fascinating all the different approaches. You know, some people are exorbitantly expensive, but they're just like, I am what I am, and there's no apologies, and like, I'm the best at this, and if you want to work with me, great. And you know what? Like, you're attracted to those people a little bit. <laughs> uh, a lot, because it is confidence. Yeah. And when I used to hire people for a living for Fortune 500 companies, like on big tech projects, I, <laughs> and I, I say it all the time, I'm like, listen, Employers want to hire people. They will hire a more confident person versus someone who has the actual skill in the thing because they'd rather have that for a variety of reasons. But the other thing, too, is that it's always the people that go in and declare their worth on a salary or a rate and bingo, they get it. 
It is instead of wavering or being like, "Well, I was thinking, mm, nope, you just lost it." All right. <laughs> you know, you know? There's no, there's no conditional, there's no conditional thing, right? I right. And, and a lot of those self-limiting beliefs, believe it or not, like I really think are that someone else is is better than than you when I actually think they're just more confident or yes. more polished or or like don't have maybe they should have more self-doubt you know the imposter syndrome is fascinating because all the people with imposter syndrome seem to be like the highest achievers who like did all the hard work and all the people that don't have it like benefit a lot from luck and timing <laughs> and <laughs> And, and, and they ascribe all of that to their brilliance. And the other people assume that they're about to be exposed in a room that they've like clearly earned their way into. So it is interesting how that works. Well, it's really fun. I mean, you, in, in talking about mindset, obviously people are listening like, okay, well, you have all the confidence in the world and you're no BS to the point. Absolutely transparent, like just going to tell you how it is. That's the the immediate vibe from, from you. Um you know, when you go through like fixed mindset and growth mindset in here, I'm looking at one of them, which is like someone saying just like, oh, I can't do this. Like, oh, I just can't do this. Yeah. And you're saying, well, the growth part of that is it's a very confident statement, which is I'm going to train my brain in how to do this. And so I think it's important that you drop these in there, not necessarily based on the specific I just mentioned, but based on a when you have a limiting belief or something that, again, doesn't feel good because it never feels good when you're like, oh, I can't do this, right? Versus like, oh, yeah, I'm going to do this. We know the feeling inside. That's a yeah. good trigger to go, hey, hold on a minute. Ooh, I got to like, let me turn that around. Five, five whys is a great exercise in that. So what, like, why can't I do this? Like list the five whys and then list, you know, number one thing for people, like I couldn't write a book. Oh, really? Like, why can't you write a book? I don't have the time. I don't know what I'd write about. Like, like, so list all those out and then like address each of them. Like you do have the time. It just means this is where we lie to ourselves a lot. It just means you have to put a half hour into writing every day and stop looking through people's food on Instagram. Right. You're choosing to spend that half hour in that way. Um, So so if that's important to you, great. But if the book's more important to you, you could reallocate the time. People who say they don't have time have never really had an audit of their calendar. <laughs> if you've ever had someone work with you on this or a leadership person or start look where your time's actually going, uh, it, it, it's pretty indicative. Uh, and one of my favorite quotes is your schedule is your priorities. So, you know, show me someone's calendar and I'll tell you what their actual priorities are, not what they say their priorities are. That's such a good way to put it. Um, well, I want to talk to you about your morning routine. And you talk about it from being a format outlined in another book, but uh, the six savers. Yeah, so so um, I really picked that up from uh, Hal Elrod, who wrote this great book called uh, The Miracle Morning. And Hal sort of looked across all these routines that uh, people were doing, sort of world class performers, and 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 combined sort of all the all the best of them. Um, but but there's you know, you, you see these things a lot. So I think, you know, first is just getting up a little earlier, having that time to be on offense, not defense, not turning on your cell phone, not God, don't, don't turn on the news. Nothing like amazing, uplifting happened overnight, particularly today. Um, you know, reading, uh, journaling, looking at your goals, getting some exercise, you know, meditating, maybe doing some affirmation or something like, like all of these things that are really about sort of mindset. And then for me, it's also the practical aspect of I tend to not have meetings in the morning and I, and I try to 
look at sort of my whole list and quarterly and annually. I even go back to my values on a tool I've built called the whole life dashboard. And then I come back to today and I'm like, all right, so based on that, what I said on that year, and I'm now looking at that Q1, like what are the three things I need to get done today? And I'm going to get them done by noon because I have the time blocked off. And if I get those done and then I start meetings or everything goes to hell, you know, in the afternoon, because things tend to get worse, you know, throughout a day from unexpected things. Like if I got those three things done, those were the most important things. And, and, and those three things times the 90 days is like 270 things in that direction that I said was important. And I think that's the difference between people who are getting these big things done. I think some people look at the big things like, oh, that's really big. Like. I can't start that. So I'm going to go knock off all the like dry cleaning and all the other stuff on my list. And the other people go, I want to write a book. So like, here's what it's going to look like. It's going to look like 30 minutes a day, whatever. And I'm just going to do that 30 minutes a day. And after 90 days, you actually have, you know, 25,000 words written. So for me, I look, it's a, it's a wash and repeat process because it's really hard. So I, 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 have to redirect that energy every day and remind myself, yeah, this is what was mo- most important for the year. This is what I said for the quarter. Like, what do I need to do today? Or I will get off track if I don't do that process. I love that. And I also love that you talk about setting annual family goals and you talk about how your children's goals, you know, and what they range yeah. from and using vision boards as well. Um, projecting further out, I guess, in a little bit of that intention sphere. Tell us about that. I mean, that's such a wonderful concept to get the family involved. Yeah. So when I first heard heard of vision boards years ago, someone told me it was like an Oprah thing. And I was like, oh, well, I'm not going to do that. Uh, And then and then then two things happened. One, I thought about later. I'm like, wow, she's pretty successful uh, in in what she does, given where she came from and where she ended up. And, And a friend of mine shared that he had actually done this with his young kids and how powerful it was to sort of make goal setting kind of fun for them and show them like, they can put something and get there. So we, we just did this for our fifth year. We buy a bunch of foam boards off Amazon. We buy a bunch of magazines. We kind of cut out all the stuff. We all do our boards and we put them up. And it's been really interesting to see that stuff has come true for myself and my kids. And I have a whole Friday forward and a story about how my son and I ended up at the Super Bowl and all the like eerie things that were on his vision board that ended up kind of connecting to that Super Bowl that we didn't even realize until months later when we went back and and looked at it. So I, you know, the law of attraction, I think, is powerful. I think, uh, and there's two elements. I, I do think there's something that we don't understand about kind of attracting things and the energy. But for the people who don't believe that stuff, I would a- offer you the pragmatic argument, which I call the, the the black Jetta syndrome, which is like if you buy a black Jetta car, you know, you you see it everywhere on the road, right? It's not that it's more on the road; it's just your awareness is heightened to it. So there is something about these planning and boards and looking at it where I think the constant awareness of of your goals and what you want redirects your energy to, oh, I got to call that person or I never followed up on this or or actually makes you do the work that that gets you there. So I, I think the combination is powerful, but I offer I always offer up both because I know some, some people, you know, really like the law of attraction stuff. They're like, uh, no, I'm a pragmatist. Like, I don't believe in that. I'm like, OK, well. Then, then the new car syndrome concept you'll you'll understand by by doing this and just keeping it in front of you constantly. 
Yeah. And for those people out there, if you are unconvinced about law of attraction or you think it's too hippy dippy, um, one of the best books on this is The Intention Experiment by Lynn McTaggart, where she actually goes through all of the scientific experiments that have been done and cooperated over time throughout the world, actually, that prove that intention does skew matter. So if anyone's curious about that and needs like the science angle, I knew at one point I wanted to like really see like, all right, has this thing been studied to kind of firm my belief in it? Um, you know, it's interesting too. And I wanted to show sometimes an intention on a vision board can become more and even better than what you originally intended to. And I don't think I've ever said it on this podcast. So I'll say it now, but this podcast for me is an example. So when Mark started the podcast and was hosting it and had he and Brad were on mostly and they were interviewing people, I never ever thought or even wanted or thought about hosting the show. But I did put the Primal Blueprint podcast on my vision board because I wanted to be on it. <laughs> I wanted to be a guest on it. And even though I worked with them and stuff, I thought, oh, well, maybe they'll let they have me come on as a health coach. Then I started to write the first book. And it was no resistance for me because I was like, oh, well, they'll probably have me on to talk about my book that they're publishing. So I'll get on there. And I just put that on my vision board. Well, oh my God, I had no idea I'd end up being the host of it eventually. So it, yeah. it was actually even better than what I like could have even, because at the time I thought, well, there's no way he's always going to host his own podcast. Um, turns out I was wrong. So sometimes an intention or the way you think it might come about can happen and manifest even better than what you could have planned on. And so I've noticed that over time too, which is, which is, I mean, such a positive. Um, let's talk about physical health. I mean, a lot of times on this show, we do talk about health, mind, body. Right. Um, you had, you had some incident that kind of threw you for a loop. Tell us about, uh, your health and, and what happened there that made you kind of look at things differently. Yeah, I had, um, so let's see, it was probably almost 10 years ago now. And I, uh, it was 2008, so it was the middle of the recession. Um, I was building a house. Um, we were building the house. We just had our third kid. I always tell people, like, three things you probably don't want to do, you know, from a stress standpoint are, you know, have a kid, build a house, and live with your parents. And uh, we had done all at the same time. And uh, I was starting uh, two businesses. Um, I My grandmother just passed away. It was just sort of you know, burning the midnight oil, you know, have a couple coffees in the morning, um, and, uh, uh, a, uh, you know, glass of wine at night and, and dehydrated and just, you know, wasn't taking care of myself. And, um, you know, one day my, my, my heart was, uh, just like racing and I, like, I couldn't get it to, to stop. And I, back to that self-reliance, right. I, I'm the person who drives myself home from the hospital after surgery. Like I'm not <laughs> like too good self-reliant. Yeah. yeah and, and, um, I really like, I started like getting nervous because I was getting sort of tingling in my arm and then, you know, you start Googling stuff and eventually I really like, um, I, I couldn't breathe. And I was standing in the kitchen and my son was there and we had a babysitter and I, and I called my uh, wife and I was like, you got to come home. Like, I, I think I'm having a heart attack. And again, for her, for, just to call her and even say that to her, if you know me, like in the context of like, I, I'm normally like, it's fine. Uh, and, and I, and I collapsed and passed out. And, um, and I, I mean, I got quickly in the, 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 the ambulance was there. I'm in the ambulance. I'm like, okay, I'm alive. You know, I don't, you know, I can move everything. Um, and, and so I, you know, I just thought I had survived a heart attack and it turned out it was just a, after a bunch of testing, it was just a massive panic attack. Um, so that was a pretty big, um, wake up for me. And, 
um, you know, in subsequent years, I, I've gotten, I got back into yoga. I started running. I just, I changed my, actually, as I'm sitting here, I can still see, see that hospital bracelet on my desk that, that, um, sits as a reminder, but I, but I changed a lot of my, my habits and, and, you know, I've, I've in subsequent years, I, you know, cause you go through times where just crazy, I, I can feel something like that coming on and I can actually like, you know, work myself out of it, <laughs> which I didn't know at the time versus it came a self-fulfilling prophecy. But, um, you know, even in the process of launching this book and all the travel and all that stuff, I, I exhausted myself. I violated kind of the core principle of, of physical capacity. And, you know, I had a hard time getting out of bed in the morning and look, this, these things are all interdependent. And, and as I said in the book there, I think there's no greater one than physical that, that sort of acts as an accelerant or like a huge anchor on your other performance in the other areas. Cause if you think about it, like if I'm exhausted and I'm tired and I'm cranky, you know, I, I, I probably aren't thinking about the big picture and spiritual capacity. My, my ability to sort of like, you know, fall through my routine and, and, and get up early and do that stuff is, is diminished and, and, and my relationships are, are, are diminished. So, um, it, it impacts everything. And, you know, one of the things I've really come to understand, uh, a lot of my friend Heidi Hanna and people that are experts on, on, on stress is that, you know, first of all, we bring stress on ourselves. People are legitimately stressed for, there's people that are stressed about, you know, their six cars and houses. And then there's people that are stressed about, finding uh, uh, food to eat that day or a place to live. So it's not a universal definition of what stresses us out. It's just we're using our fight or flight mechanism kind of all day long, and our, our, our bodies aren't, aren't designed for that, and it's making a lot of us really sick and unhealthy. And on that note, with the adrenals and the fight or flight, it can even be I know myself had to chill out on people like us, I'm sure you the same way, are really good at multitasking, you know, and I can work really fast. And that has gotten You can me, use that to your advantage, yeah. Yeah, and it's gotten to me in trouble too with regards to like if you really look at your heart rate or what's happening during that time, um, while it might feel like you're on this high, it's kind of that false cortisol high and it can be doing some damage in the background. So, you know, knowing what I know about health and what I learned, I started to go... All right. I mean, even just watching a scary, crazy movie, you're, you look at heart rate can jump up to like 120, right? And so it is about what are in this modern age, multitasking all of these technological platforms, uh, sometimes like switching it up, interruption, Turn right? Turn off all the notifications. Right. Yeah, yeah that's, that, that's kind of a key a key thing. The Apple Watch has been really interesting for me. I, I can pretty much tell you within five beats per minute now where my heart rate is because I, I, I've, I've learned like sometimes you'll feel the stress. I'll look down. I'll be like, wow, my resting heart rate shouldn't be yep. 105. Like I, it actually has brought an awareness and conscious to me of like, uh, it's been a very interesting thing in two years of the Apple watch. Like I'm pretty good at telling you where my heart rate is based on like how I feel now. And it's a great thing for everybody. Cause I, I have the continuous heart rate monitor too on my wrist. And so it could be someone cuts you off in driving and your heart jumps in your stomach and now your heart rate raises. Well, now cortisol surging. If you let that thought go, it's yeah. going to keep going beyond its initial few minutes of what it's going to do. And so you have the choice in that moment, like are you going to bitch and call five friends or be upset about this? Or are you going to go, hold on a minute. I just got jolted, but it's a false fear. It's just, yeah. it didn't happen. Let me breathe it out. I mean, there are ways we can really take it down and, and influence our, and again, self-awareness or pulse awareness. <laughs> um, one of the things I want to talk to you about is very interesting. And you mentioned it before, just, uh, obviously I, I just wrote a book on it, but when I was reading your book, I was like, wow, this guy and I, uh, think a lot 
so similar about a lot of things. And one is, I love what you talked about competition. So I'm going to read what you said in your your book, which is competing is about elevating, elevating your own game, practicing, getting better and giving a maximum effort. It's not about winning at all costs or wishing failure on others. And what I love about this is I always talk about something called like when you compete, you lose. And that doesn't mean you don't enter in a competition. People are like, well, how could right. you, how could you, if someone, someone has to lose, right? But it's a different vibration. And this is, I think what you're saying here and correct me if I'm wrong. I always differentiate it with me winning is about me killing it and being number one. It's really not about the feeling I get from your failure in that scenario. It's just me winning. There's such a different vibration there, right? And you kind of, that's kind of what I got from this, right? It's not about wishing failure in others. It's about such a confident move, such a confident way to look at things. Let's talk about competition because I agree with you. It's kind of bad rap, right? (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it actually comes from the Latin word, uh, I think it's competre, which means strive together, right? And I, I, I think it really is about, you know, one of the ironies I say is like, look, an elite yoga instructor will compete to beat someone out for a job at like Canyon Ranch, right? <laughs> the, 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 every, everything you want has, has competition. And I think it's about elevating uh, the game and raising the bar for everyone. Um, one of my favorite stories, we were in an offsite as a team years ago and we, we were bowling uh, over the first first round and yeah, the kind of the energy was sort of fading out and I was like, all right $20 on the table to whoever wins the next round and everyone bowled 30% better <laughs> in the next round Right everyone everyone pushed each other and you know One of the things I talk about in the book is if you look at history like some of these historical pairings like Bill Gates and Steve Jobs Larry Bird and Magic Johnson you had Leonardo da Vinci and Michelangelo like kind of these rivals during these times where they they pushed each other. Uh, and and when, in, in just even in business, when you have no competition, you have stagnant uh, monopolies. So I, I, I think competition, you know, really gets a bad name. I mean, my kids, like I encourage them to compete, but we talk about being good winner, good loser. Like it's about playing your best and being elevated to your best. And, you know, I, when you're when you're when you're not when the bar's low, like I'm not sure that a lot of people give their best effort. I don't you know, we, we try to be a best place to work. Um, I don't know a lot of people that want to work for the 10,000th best place to work. You know, that, that doesn't sound like the, <laughs> the type of place that they, that, that they want to work. So yeah, I, 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 look the, 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 I think the, the, uh, boomer parents who sort of brought up the millennials really like, you know, that was all the participation trophy and all that stuff, which, which I, I think did a lot of harm because what, yes. what it taught people was like minimal effort. It, it, it gets you a reward versus like, you know, you get that just for showing up, which is the wrong message um, to send. Uh, Gen X parents do not seem to be they seem not doing that. You know, these are the parents who grew up more sort of independent. That So that's sort of been killed. I But I, I that's I think that 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 failure to learn about competition and winning and losing for that whole generation has had real consequences for them in, in, in life and, and why you're seeing so many of them face mild adversity and end up, you know, uh, in, in, in therapy, you know, at, at 20 or 30, cause they just haven't had to do that before. And they were just told that life's easy and we'll make it all easy for you. And it's not. Um, so I, I to me, the learning how to lose is, is almost, more important than winning in some cases. Well, absolutely. And you're a person who, and defined by this book and things that you say, believe, you know, that challenges and failures are chances to succeed and move forward, not obviously give up. But, and let's talk about resiliency for a second, because 
And you say it, and it's true. Um, some of the lowest points for most of us in our life define our character and resolve and help us clarify what we want most. And yeah. that failure and struggle are paths to success, not an obstacle. And the way that I think about this contrasted with what you just talked about, that generation, is let's go back to primal ancestral times. You had to be resilient. No one sat around and was a victim. You had to get up and keep moving. You had to find a solution. It was about forward thinking, not simmering uh, go, in the past. Go find your, go find your food. No right, and learning like, oh, yeah, uh, we're not going to eat those berries again because uh, Joe just dropped. <laughs> so yeah, let's talk about resiliency um, a little bit. Yeah, so, so I, I think there's a, there's a chicken and egg argument. And, and I talked to a bunch of people on this, like physical and emotional. You can make a case, right? Is it... Is it is it is it physical first and then emotional or emotional and then physical? And talking to a lot of people, I, I think it is physical first. So we do something that we don't think that we can do. It's hard. We then gain confidence, and then that cycle makes us believe that we can do other stuff and and want to push push through it. And and to me, that's like kind of the positive flywheel around it. You know, one of the things I talked about in the book, and I think is really important, is and this goes to being locked in on your spiritual capacity, like. You're resilient when it, it, it's most important to you and it has to be done and you'll go down on the ship and you will go down with the company because it's so important to you that what you're doing that you'd rather, you know, go down with it than it not happen. And, 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 and so I think we're most resilient when we're really clear about what we want and why we want it. Conversely, there's some other stuff we need to be less resilient about. Like if it, if it's not core to you, like let it go. Like, and, and, and we're probably like, using some of that energy in the, in, in the wrong space. And, and, and that's been hard for me. There's some stuff I've just been like, I got to let it go. And I got to not care about this. This is, this is not the die on the vine issue for me. Like if I'm going to die on a vine, I should die on, on that vine, not this vine. I love, uh, sort of talking about gratitude and attitude in your book. And yeah. I completely agree with the statement you made, which is I have yet to meet a high achiever or a world-class performer who has a negative attitude or who believes the worst is going to happen. And this reminds me of uh, Mark Twain's quote. He said something like, I'm a very old man and I've had many worries in my life, most of which have never happened. And I remember I even asked um, my mom, I was a, a real tough teenager. It was a rough, it was rough being my, I, I, I was a, I was an asshole. I apologize to my mother constantly for this, but, um, but I, I just remember like at the time just feeling like, I don't know where I was going with this. Sorry, give me a second. Um, that the world, the, 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 world the, the worries are her. Yeah, I asked her. Yeah. I said, I said, hey, all the worries you had about me back then, all the things that, oh my gosh, you know, who knows what's going to become of my daughter. I said, just take a minute. I go, did by the way, just and be honest, did any of those worries ever come true? And she was like, took a minute, and she's like, well, no. <laughs> and I was like, yeah. I mean, if we really think about it, now, she had actually some legit reasons to kind of make me worry. Yeah. Uh, sure. But still, this this whole tenet of, again, believing the worst is going to happen or negative attitude, this goes back to something I say, twist on a Finnish composer's quote of, uh, no one ever built a statue to a skeptic, and I or to a critic. And I said, no right, one ever right. built a statue to a skeptic, right? Like, there's no monuments built to the guy that's like, eh, I don't know, probably, I wouldn't, you know, it's risky, <laughs> right? Yeah. So let's talk about this attitude, right? And how we have to change this if you want success. Yeah, and, and I, I want to be clear, and I think I said this, like like having a positive attitude doesn't mean you're sort of like, oh, it's going to great, it's always good. Like It just means like 
a, a little more like stoicism of, 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 okay, here's the issue. And what do I do? Like, let's not lament how we got here. I mean, we talked, we, we touched this tangentially before, like, you know, person cuts you off in traffic, right? That's the event. And then there's like, you can decide whether to let that bother you all day and get your blood boil and sort of cascade downwards. Or you can be like, you know what, like that person's angrier than I am. Like I'm going on with my day. Like I'm lucky that we didn't get into an accident. So I, I, I think a lot of times, you know, being grateful, people, people make the assumption like, you know, someone's like rainbows and unicorns and sort of is, is delusional versus they, they just aren't, you know, fundamentally negative or trying to figure out why something won't work. Like I, I, the, I this is where I really do believe that, con, you know, some of the Buddhist principles and stoicism of like, look, it is what it is. What's the reality? You know, what do I do from here? How do I have a solution mindset? Not, not saying that everything's perfect and there are no problems. Yeah. And, uh, I think of Byron Katie on that, who talks about, you know, we argue with reality, we suffer, right? Yeah. And that just, that's just right in line with that. So tell us, first of all, we can find your book Elevate almost everywhere. Um, and it's really lovely. And it's wonderful and actually beautiful and aesthetically pleasing as well. It's a great, uh, it's a great gift to get for people. And, and I it's, think. Only, it's only about an hour to read. So it's part of a whole, it's a part of a series that's I guess designed towards societal ADD, where you get a book a month. Uh, <laughs> so it's not—it's not a huge investment of time. It's yeah, you know, it's—it's actually like a really great gift to get a bunch of people too, because it's just something lovely that you can just see people kind of checking in with every now and then. Tell us how how we can like if we're listening and we're like, gosh, how can we benefit from more of what you have to say and your work that you do? Sure. So a couple easy ways. Everything's all integrated now. So if you go to robertglazer.com. Uh, you can find the book at slash elevate. Uh, you can also find my podcast, which talks about a lot of these things and uh, a newsletter I have called Friday forward, which talks about a lot of the, I think it shares sort of stories of capacity building, uh, that goes to about a hundred thousand people all around the world each week. So all of that's in one place at Robert Glazer, G-L-A-Z-E-R.com. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. And we will put all of the links to connect with you and your book in the show notes. Anything else you'd like to leave our audience with on this topic of elevating your life? Uh, yeah, just, you know, one of the things in the book, it has it has a section on just things you can do. Um, I, I know a lot of times these things like big concepts, but things you can do like tomorrow or this quarter and, and, and people have sort of like that. So I, change, uh, it doesn't happen overnight, but, but I think if you start doing a lot of small things, you'll see changes pretty, pretty significantly, you know, within, within a few months in your life. Thank you so much for all of your work and to everyone else. We'll see you next week. Hey, Primal Blueprint listeners, no dairy in your life? No problem. Primal Kitchen has you covered because our no-dairy vodka sauce is made with avocado oil and organic cashew butter so you can ditch the dairy and keep the decadent taste you love. Made without gluten, soy, canola oil, or artificial ingredients, this vegan plant-based sauce is paleo-certified. Visit us at primalkitchen.com for more real food options from dairy-free Alfredo sauce to tomato basil marinara and a whole host of other delicious products the entire family will love. Hi folks, Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the primal path and want to help others live primally too, then visit primalhealthcoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. 
So visit PrimalHealthCoach.com today to learn more.